If it's the weekend, it's time to have fun with your pet. But when it comes to technology, apps, and what's hot, you don't want to waste money or waste your or your pet's time. Welcome to Pet Lover Geek with Lorian Clemens. In today's show, Lorian and her guests will keep you in the know to keep your pet happy as well as you and your family. Now here's your host, Lorian Clemens. Happy day and welcome to Pet Lover Geek. Today we've got such a great show. We are going to geek out with the latest and greatest scientific research that is happening right now and some of the great, amazing discoveries that have been made in the past. We've got amazing science that is helping our fur kids and our feather and scale kids live longer, healthier, happier lives. So I'm really excited. Today we are going to start out with kitties. I know we spend a lot of time talking about dogs, but today we're going to start with the cats. I am super excited to have Steve Dale join us today to talk about Win Feline Foundation and all the incredible work they do. You probably know Steve from his national radio shows, his wonderful blog, stevedalepetworld.com, or one of the many books that he's written as a certified animal behavior consultant. In fact, if you've been to pretty much any animal conference just on just about anything in the last decade or so, you've probably run into Steve because he's everywhere telling everybody about a lot of wonderful things. So I'm really grateful that he's taken time out today with us to talk about something that I know is near and dear to his heart, Win Feline Foundation, who is celebrating their 50th year. Incredible. Welcome to the show, Steve. Oh, this is the most exciting conversation I can have because if you have a cat, if you have a cat, I guarantee or your money back that your cat every day is being touched by something the Wind Feline Foundation has funded over the past 50 years. So what this organization does is fund cat health studies. And as you and I just pointed out, it began 50 years ago. It began with $125. That's, wow. Uh, uh, the, uh, a guy by the name of Robert Wynn, W-I-N-N, hence the name, Wynn Feline Foundation, said 50 years ago, it wouldn't be a bad idea to support cat health studies. There was then, 50 years ago, no organization solely dedicated to do that. Mm -hmm. Today, 50 years later, there is only one organization on the planet that is dedicated only to supporting cat health studies. And that is the Wind Feline Foundation, where where now we've we've spent over $6 million with $6 million of funding studies and everything from what cats eat every day, or at least most cats. Let me, let me, let me tell you a little story. I would love I that. I'd love that. So back way before your time, you know what? Probably before your mother's time, back in the 1970s. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing funny about that. Uh, cats were being fed cat food. Right. And, and uh, cats were also dying of dilated cardiomyopathy, which was a kind, is a kind of heart disease. Uh, that can cause blindness and may cause death in cats. Uh, but no one thought of the, 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 the idea that what we're feeding cats would have anything to do with this. And researchers were looking for a cure desperately or for a treatment. And, and one particular uh, researcher, Dr. Paul Payan, uh, who was a veterinary student at the time, uh, said, uh, you know, he was a grad, he was already a veterinarian, but he was going for his, uh, for, to be a, a specialist in cardiology. And he said, I really 
think based on, and then he pointed out what it was based on. I think it has something to do with the cat food. And everyone thought the guy was like, what? How can that have anything to do with it? Uh, well, he thought there wasn't enough of an amino acid called taurine in cat, in, in cat foods. Uh, taurine is an essential amino acid that uh, we need, dogs need, cats need. Uh, but we can create our own if we don't have enough of it through food, and dogs can do the same. Cats cannot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out Wynn was the only organization that was funded. Turned out he was right, of course. I wouldn't be telling the story otherwise. And today we don't ever see hardly cardiomyopathy, uh, dilated cardiomyopathy in uh, cats that live at homes. Right, because now it's it. in the food. Taurine is now in the food. Right. Yeah, uh, enough of it is now in the food. That's exactly right. So that is one example. And there are hundreds of examples that I just, I mean, we just don't have the time, but everything from uh, the vaccines that our cats get to treatments for all sorts of things, including many kinds of cancers, but not solely that, uh, the way in which uh, we better understand community cats, the way in which we better understand cats in shelters and what their specific needs are. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Pretty much everything every day that happens to our cats uh, was once funded by the Winfield Land Foundation. Well, I actually, we do have a little bit of time to talk about some of these. I would like for, so uh, the touring thing is, is, is amazing. That's like, and I, I, I mean, I obviously I'm not a veterinarian, so I'm not in that world. So, but just to come up with like, I think it's the touring. That's, that's an amazing, just the initial hypothesis. Wow. Incredible. But I'd love, oh, we have some others joining us today. Maybe the cat well, got in the way. What, <laughs> well, what's happening is our dogs are upset that I'm talking with you about cats. Well, I, I understand. I have both dogs laying next to me and I have a cat <laughs> staring me in the doorway. So we've got a similar situation going on here. Um, so I'd love to hear about, you know, some of those those core things that are that are major issues right now. I'd love to hear about either science that's been recently done by Wynn or maybe in the works with Wynn. So I'm thinking cat ob- obesity, diabetes, a lot of cats are having kidney problems, like things that are in there. So can you talk about some of the science that Wynn is helping with that? Sure. Uh, so diabetes, it was thought, and this is much more recent than the other example I gave with uh, taurine and dilated cardiomyopathy. Uh, it, very recently, up until recently, it's thought that, you know what, we need to feed a, a higher protein diet to cats. I mean, a lower protein diet, I'm sorry, right. uh, for cats that are diabetic, which is somewhat similar to people. But the diabetes in cats, that's not the case. It turns out to be uh, Dr. Greg Depo, uh, Greco at Colorado State University. We funded, we being the Winfieland Foundation, I am on their board, and, and we funded her. Uh, and, and what she demonstrated are several different things. Uh, and others have replicated as well, uh, including Purina, uh, by the way, the pet food company. And, and what they showed is that the reverse of what we thought is true, uh, that in fact, and it seems like what I'm about to say, many of you today will say, well, come on, we knew that. Well, we didn't know that. And veterinary medicine didn't know what I'm about to suggest. And it was thought to be groundbreaking until it was demonstrated repeatedly that in fact, cats do better that are diabetic with a high protein diet, a low carb diet simultaneously. Also, that if we can get their metabolism to change through exercise and in the process of that gradual weight loss, uh, then what we can do in many, not all, but many cases is actually push that diabetes 
into remission. So mm-hmm. the cats don't even need insulin anymore. She, Dr. Greco showed that, uh, Purina showed that, and over the course of years, others have showed that too. And now we treat diabetes, which is an epidemic in cats actually, very differently uh, than we did just uh, 10 or 12 years ago. And that is because of the Wind Feline Foundation. I think, uh, Lorian, uh, the worst diagnosis uh, to, for a dog or a cat in, in veterinary medicine is something that happens in cats only. And it's called, actually, mostly it happens with kittens. And it's called feline infectious peritonitis. Mm. And uh, for, I'll tell you, since the disease was discovered, which when feline funded the original funding for back, I don't know, about 40 years ago, um, Dr. Niels Peterson and others, we have funded the Win Feline Foundation millions of dollars uh, toward understanding, first of all, this very complicated disease called FIP, uh, feline infectious peritonitis. Um, it took us, and it took researchers, investigators, decades, decades to really understand the disease process here. Um, but it's fatal. Mm-hmm. It's always been considered fatal. There are two forms of it. One form, your cat's going to probably live longer than the other, but not very long, less than a year. In most cases, it's fatal. And, and the other form of FIP, sometimes the kitten lives, and usually it is kittens, as I said, just a matter of weeks or months. Wow. And, and that, Something and that, needs to be done. Right, and Go is that ahead, something that, that Wynn is, is, is continuing research on? I mean, I'm assuming it's something that's a long-term because it's not cured, cured yet. No, it's not cured yet, but we're close. So I haven't talked about this a ton uh, publicly, but, there's, but in fact, uh, the very man who began this research, Dr. Peterson, uh, who's now, let's just say, I think I could say this. He's a professor emeritus. It'll tell you at the University of California, Davis. So he's not a spring chicken anymore. <laughs> and uh, he he he's figured it out. I mean, there's a class of drug, and ironically, the same class of drug that's used, for example, uh, in Ebola mm. uh, with people. This this class of drug seems to be helping, and uh, this is the second clinical trial that he's on. Uh, it seems clear that he's on the right path. Uh, feline infectious peritonitis is a viral disease, so this is an antiviral. And you know what? Uh, years ago, veterinarians would throw antivirals at it, and we know today that, well, that's not going to work. I mean, uh, most people know that. If it's a viral infection, an antibiotic isn't going to work. Right. Uh, unless a bacterial infection occurs simultaneously, and sometimes it does, but it's not going to solve FIP. Uh, but an antiviral we now know might. We didn't have powerful antivirals 40 years ago. Uh, today we do. Uh, that's part of how we're able to get, how we move from where we were to where we are today. But I will tell you, uh, this is, uh, when you talk to veterinarians, I'm having trouble putting it into words, because when you talk to veterinarians that have been around several decades and you say, we might have a treatment for FIP, they may fall over. I mean, this is the worst diagnosis ever, 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 ever. And now there is light at the end of the tunnel. I am not suggesting we have an answer that's going to happen tomorrow, but I am suggesting 
that we're on to something and we're on our way to absolutely having the answer. We are close. And, and that in itself is a statement that most people thought we would never be able to make because it's such a complicated disease and on and on and on. Uh, but we need resources to do it. It is incredible. We need resources to do it. We need help. Uh, a, a woman by the name of Susan Gingrich uh, just a few years ago began uh, the BRIA Fund at the Wind Feline Foundation and, and around the world. Uh, she has an army of followers that are focused on raising money for this one tragic, awful, terrible disease. And, and I say that in part because it's fatal. I say right. that because no matter what we do, kittens suffer and because it's kittens and right. because it is often kittens, people are often mourning before this ever happened. Right. Because they, they, they have a kitten because their other cat maybe passed away. Right. So now they're told that this kitten has a fatal disease they've never heard of. So uh, it's tragic in every way whatsoever. And we're on to something. Yeah. And t- so, and I, I want to, there's two points here that I want to kind of wrap around so that people can kind of understand. Number one, if they're sitting at home listening to like, wow, this is an incredible organization. I want to support Win Feline. How can they go do that? Oh, that's easy. Uh, WinFelineFoundation.org. And by the way, you mentioned our 50th anniversary. Yeah, Ooh, that's there awesome. Is, there is a, yeah, and I'm about to make an announcement that I've never made before until mm-hmm. this very moment. One, one, uh, th- this announcement I've made, and there is a free, I like that word, uh, celebratory book that describes everything the Wind Foundation has done, some things like stem cell cell studies that we're uh, embarking on right now, what I'm talking about with FIP. I mean, this book goes through all of that, and it's free, free, and it's available uh, at winfelinefoundation.org. There is a movie. Some young filmmakers had a kitten that died of FIP. So they said, we need to do something about it. They made a short film it's 18 or 16 minutes or something. I've seen it, of course. And uh, it will be premiered in early November at the Lincoln Center in New York City, of all places. Wow, so that's awesome. If you, yeah. So I'll have all those details on my blog, or you can go to the Win Feline Foundation website, winfelinefoundation.org, uh, when those details become available, which will be any day now. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, and, and uh, we'll make sure to too when we when we post uh, this episode on our uh, Facebook page, we'll make sure to put that information there too. I want to ask too. So before we wrap it up, so when people give the money to Win Feline, and then you guys, I'm sure you're inundated with requests for grant money for all this research. How do you decide who gets the money? It's a great question. So we have a scientific advisory board uh, with some of the greatest leaders. Uh, in feline medicine in the world. A lot of letters after their name. Mm-hmm. They have more letters after their name than most people have in their name. <laughs> uh, they, are, they are truly expert on, on feline medicine. They've written all the books that veterinarians read about feline medicine uh, and, and all of that in this group, which is an uh, interesting group of people because it's academians, it's private practitioners, it's, it's a variety of different people with different perspectives, as well as the board members of WIN, uh, which I am one of, all look at the proposals. And the sad part is we never 
have enough money to support all of the proposals we want. Mm-hmm. And I wish we did, you know, but, yeah. but it's all of these experts that come together. It takes all day. Uh, and it's, it's a fascinating process. There's even a statistician in there to say, okay, are there enough animals in the study? Uh, how are they going to uh, relate their statistics? I mean, we, we, we do an extraordinary job at that. It's, it's to sit back and watch this process is just fascinating. I bet it is. I bet it is. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Really great stuff about Win Feline. Make sure, everybody, you go to winfeline.org to learn more. And stick around, pet lovers, because next we are going to be geeking out with the folks at Morris Animal Foundation. They're another incredible group that, like Win Feline, is paving the way for cutting-edge science. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you. And we're going to be back soon on Pet Lover Geek on Voice America. Stick around. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Would you like to be the change you see needed in the world? Are you ready to make a difference? If so, tune in to Voice for Truth with host Sharon Wyckoff. Every show will be filled with inspiring content to support you in recognizing your greatness. Guests will share their expertise. Young people will tell how they are making a difference. You too can be a voice for truth. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Pet Lover Geek with Lorian Clemens. If you'd like to connect with the show today, please send an email to PetLoverGeek at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, pet lovers. Today, we're geeking out with cutting-edge science. Yes, I'm so excited about this. I, I, I know that you might get a little tired of how 
goofy excited I get about these episodes where we talk about the latest science for our pets, but it is something that really jazzes me. I love hearing about it, and I am very thrilled to have back on the show Dr. Kelly Deal. She's a science writer and researcher with Morris Animal Foundation who does tremendous research for our animals, both our animals that we keep at home, but the animals out in in wildlife as well. So really excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Kelly. Um, Thanks, Lorene. It's great to be back and be able to talk a little bit about our new studies. I'm excited. So, Dr. Deal, let's just jump right in. The new year coming up. I think you guys, if if I've heard correctly, you have just uh, approved some brand new projects that the Morris Animal Foundation is going to be funding. And I would love to hear about those projects that are in the works. Sure. And uh, you're correct. We usually go through our canine and feline reviews in June. And we're just excited that we're just beginning to start these guys in their projects. And I brought a few that I think kind of varied for your audience. And we're going to start with some dog stuff. And of course, as you guys know, we're very interested in cancer in canines. We know that it is a big problem for our older pets, especially as we do such a great job of keeping them healthy and fit and alive into their older years, cancer becomes more of an issue with them. And we have a variety of different ways that we're looking at cancer in dogs. And one of our studies is a brand new study is looking at how our liver, which we all know is important in detoxification, right? Of Mm -hmm. food and uh, different environmental things that we're exposed to. And this group is looking at how the liver in certain dogs might be better than in other breeds of dogs at detoxifying carcinogens. Hmm. So we know that there are carcinogens. We know, for example, tobacco smoke, which is a problem for people. Well, it's a problem for our pets and it has been linked to certain cancers. And that's one of the carcinogens they'll be studying. Other ones include uh, pesticides and herbicides. And what they're looking at is these pathways that we know exist in our liver and our dog's livers that are responsible for detoxification. And their idea is, are there some breeds of dogs that we know have high cancer rates that maybe their systems in their liver are just not as good at detoxifying carcinogens, and that might explain a bit why they have more cancer. Now, I'm curious, when you when these type of tests, and I understand you're not there in the lab with these guys, so you don't know exactly what their methodology is, but are these with live animals, or is this going to be through uh, you know, post-mortem stuff, or how are they uh, basing this particular study? Right. Great question. This is, uh, you're correct. It's actually a bench research study where they know the pathway and they're going to look at it in vitro on how, uh, but but from different dog breeds and study how different dog breeds have these pathways. Mm-hmm. So they're going to come do some comparative work. And what they want to know is, is there a difference or maybe there isn't a difference? And this is not a good marker. I, I, ultimately, what they want to say, just like they may say in us, if you know women who have, for example, breast cancer genes that make them more susceptible to breast cancer and therefore they take extra precautions, right. it would be the same 
same type of thing for dogs. Do we have, do I own a dog that I need to be especially careful about because they have a gene that could be, make them more uh, prone to developing cancer, if that makes sense. So then, yeah, and so then it might lead to either drug therapy or type of feeding that maybe you avoid certain types of foods or what have you that maybe are hard on the liver, et cetera, et cetera. Fascinating. So, and uh, so, oh, sorry. So that was one of our cancer studies. Another one is looking at, uh, you probably know about hemangiosarcoma. It's a very aggressive, very deadly cancer in dogs. It tends to be more common in large breed dogs. And it is a terrible cancer in that we know it can develop very quickly. Often the first signs of it are when a dog collapses. Often it is quite late in the disease. They'll they'll just hide their symptoms until it becomes a crisis. And there are some researchers that we're funding an extension of the study where they're looking at uh, ways to try to block can't these particular types of cancers from growing maybe help control them and they're doing some very exciting research in looking at drugs i can't give it away but it's a very common these are common generic drugs that might actually have utility hmm. they're not used for this in people but they're uh, used they're actually cardiac drugs that may have utility in blocking this very aggressive cancer so we're super excited about that one and how that might pan out And the other nice part about that particular study is it's a collaborative effort between a very established investigator that we funded before, and she's training someone who will be doing this project. So we're getting uh, extra bonus there, and not only are we getting this great research done, but we're also training a future scientist. And I love the fact that, that, that folks are able to go in and say, okay, here's this drug that's used for XYZ, but let's, let's look at maybe the off-label uses for this drug because there's so, there, some of these things are so powerful and they do so much more than we really realize. I love that that research is being done with animals now because it's being done for decades with humans. So to see it being used in animals, fabulous. What else? Uh, we have, uh, as uh, you guys probably know, the microbiome is a very, very hot topic mm-hmm. in human medicine. And we talk a lot about, of course, our gut microbiomes, but we know there's a microbiome on our skin. And now people are talking about there's microbiomes in our house and in our workplaces. Uh, so it's very uh, interesting area of research on how we share our space and our bodies with all these other organisms. And we're looking at that in dogs as well. And one of our new studies is going to look at how the microbiome in the gut, which was really the first microbiome, right, that people Mm -hmm, studied, mm -hmm. and how that uh, microbiome may change over time when dogs who have chronic enteropathy, which is really our term for inflammatory bowel disease, which you know in people, Crohn's is an example of Mm -hmm, that, -hmm. how that microbiome changes over time. And the reason these guys are looking at it is they want to say, okay, as we treat these dogs, they have microbiome that looks like X when when they're symptomatic. 
and maybe they get better and their symptoms go away, their signs of disease, and does their microbiome change or not? And what does it change to with the idea, okay, if it changes and this is a more healthy microbiome, can we intervene with things like probiotics Mm -hmm. or prebiotics or a combination and maybe accelerate uh, their response to treatment? But first we got to figure out what happens to these guys when you treat them. Maybe the signs go away, but their microbiomes don't change. Is that going to be a source of relapse or uh, is there something we can intervene? And so that's a very cool project. There have been publications, some from studies we funded that look have looked at at X point in time, right? This is what your microbiome looks like. Mm-hmm. So you're healthy or you're sick. This is one of the few studies that's going to look at it over a period of time. That's exciting because I, so what, it was an interesting thing. I, I'm preparing for surgery and they're having me do all these different probiotic things so that I'll heal better to get my body in a better place for healing. And I thought that's fascinating. And I, I'm excited to see that in human you know, medicine, because I've never, I've had several surgeries and it's never been brought up before, but now it is for the first time. And I think it's really exciting. So to know that that's also something that we're looking at with animals. Again, I love it when we're taking that science and spreading it around to all the wonderful creatures on earth. (laughs) Great. And and is there anything else that's new, new and exciting on the horizon? Yeah, a couple of ones. Two studies I want to talk about uh, that actually one's a dog study, one's a feline study, and they have to do with platelets. So we all know about platelets. They're cells that are in our bloodstream, right? They're very important in clotting. Uh, We know that they're very important in stroke in people, right? There's a lot of interest in in inhibiting platelets. And for example, when we take low-dose aspirin or they tell us to take aspirin if we think we're having a stroke, that part of that is is addressing platelets that form clots. We have two studies kind of looking at different aspects of platelet function. One is in dogs, just like in people, we give dogs transfusions. We give them blood transfusions. We can give them just red cell transfusions. And there's great interest in giving them platelet transfusions. That's not uncommon in people, right? If you have a Mm -hmm. bleeding problem, if you're a hemophiliac, sometimes they might give you a platelet if you're having surgery. The problem is in dogs is we don't do a very good job of storing our platelets. Now, if you can harvest them and give them very quickly to a dog, excellent, great. But as we know, that's not really practical Mm -mm. when we need to pull something off the shelf. So one of our studies, a unique one, is looking at ways to try to extend the storage life of dog platelets such that they could be used and stored just like our blood products, which we store with dogs. Dogs are not, um, what we know about our dogs is we love them and they are, you know, our friends, but some of what we use in human medicine doesn't always translate right Mm -hmm. into our pets. They are peculiar enough that while uh, some drugs we can use, uh, others we can't or techniques. And this is one of them that we're, we're working on. The other study that we're talking about is platelets and cats and Back to the story about platelets being important in blood clotting and and strokes in people. Cats, I don't want to use the word stroke because it's not the same, but they can get abnormal blood clots that can be very, very detrimental and often fatal if they have heart disease. So a lot like people. Mm -hmm. And 
you're looking at a drug, you probably have heard of Plavix. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. it's a very common drug used, quote, blood thinner. And we use that in cats. But what we see in cats is some cats do great with Plavix and some it doesn't seem to work very well. And we have a study that, again, is also a training fellowship. So we're getting, you know, extra bang for our buck where a uh, a researcher is going to look at why are cats different. And if you know people who are on blood thinners uh, like warfarin, they often have a very different way of how they respond to some of the blood thinners. And now it's routine that they would do a genetic test on you to see how you need to be treated with certain blood thinners. Hmm. The same seems to be possible in cats. So what we're looking at is if we can identify cats that are going to be good responders or maybe cats need a little more Plavix or others don't need as much, that we can actually personalize their dosages of this important drug because when it works, it works great. But again, trying to individualize and understand why some cats do great and some cats don't. That's really awesome. Now, we we only have a couple more minutes, but I I, I want you to, you have any of your wildlife studies that are coming up that you're really excited about? Because I think it's cool that you guys don't just do our pets at home, but you do all animals. Right. And I I brought a couple of wildlife studies that are very interesting. One is being done right now. It's an extension of a pilot study that we funded looking at lead in New Orleans mockingbirds. And why that's interesting is, of course, they're an urban wildlife and they are seem to be good markers for lead in the environment. We know that New Orleans is a very old city. Mm-hmm. And even though, the, of course, there are regulations regarding lead paint, etc., there are areas in New Orleans where lead can be a problem and the mockingbirds are affected by the lead in the environment. And what is also really cool about this study is these uh, work, uh, these researchers at Tulane have kind of got the community as citizen scientists involved in helping them collect data on the mockingbirds because they're looking at it's really cool and so that's a really exciting study and we were very happy we funded a very small pilot study it was very successful the researcher applied for a larger grant and we just funded them and, and we're really really excited about that we have another study that's quite interesting and and probably a lot of people don't know that there's a very deadly herpes virus effect Asian elephants worldwide. It is serious. It is probably, according to one researcher, the number one health problem in Asian elephants. And again, these aren't just captive populations. These are worldwide. It's a a very deadly virus that tends to have very high fatality rates in young Asian elephants. And that's a problem because if you're trying to, uh, in certain areas, they have large... um, I don't want to say captive, but, you know, on like a reserve and they're trying to build up the population. But if your elephants are dying, it's been a very big problem in trying to get the Asian elephants population increased. And this herpes virus is a been a. Uh, was discovered about 20 years ago, but it's quite an ancient virus. So it's been around a very, 
very long time. But again, as we encroach on habitat, as more elephants are put together, many of these are used for, as you know, the logging industry in Southeast Asia. So they're they're in close proximity. It um, enhances transmission of this particular virus. And we have a group that is working on a vaccine strategy for this, which would be a tremendous help. It's unusual, again, in that it affects Asian, but not African elephants, but African may be uh, carriers. Again, we're, we're just learning about this, uh, a great deal about this virus. African elephants have their own form of, of herpes, but it seems not to affect them. But this virus, this strategy to vaccine would really, really help us try to save these uh, precious animals. Absolutely. I, that is so wonderful. I, I, I've got all the feels right now. That's really great. I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show again, Dr. Deal. Thank you so much for coming on. And can you tell people real quick where they need to go if they want to help Morris Animal Foundation with their mission? Sure. So if you want to go to our website, which is www.morrisanimalfoundation.org, so one word, that you can find all kinds of information. We're redoing our website, which we're super excited about. But will all these studies, uh, we fund horse studies as well. Uh, so we have on our website ways to donate, what we've done in the past, stories about what we're doing, information about animal health issues, not just what we fund, but ones that are of a concern. It's all there on the website. Fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Deal. It was great being on again. I just love talking with your audience. Thank you so much. We're going to be back in just a few moments, pet lovers, because we are going to talk about some new discoveries, including one that will finally prove what we've all known forever, that our dogs really do love us. That's what's next on Pet Lover Geek. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Pet Lover Geek with Lorian Clemens. If you'd like to connect with the show today, please send an email to PetLoverGeek at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, pet lovers. For our last segment, I thought it would be fun to share some of the latest animal science news stories that have come across my desk recently. You know, scientists are actually always releasing these stories about animals, and and, and some of the stuff is really, really fun and cool and a little bit off the beaten path. And I thought, you know, it's really fun if we kind of shared some of these findings with you guys so you can hear the things that delight my day when I get them in my newsfeed. So I want to start off with a study that helps prove our dogs really love us. Now, (laughs) I'm sure that a lot of you are saying, well, duh, I know my dog loves me. But I also know that you've definitely heard people saying that, look, guys, come on, animals are not capable of love. It's not the same thing in animals as it is in humans. Emotions are something different with, with animals. You guys are just anthropomorphizing those dogs. And you know what? Frankly, dogs are just showing us behaviors that they've learned that get them positive responses from humans. And honestly, yep, there are definitely things that we've proven scientifically that dogs do because, hey, human beings react positively to this. So over the you know years and years of, of evolution, dogs started to do those things. So yeah, that's, part of that is true. But there's definitely something that all of us that are, that are dog lovers and have a lot of dogs in our lives, we know that there's something else there. There is an emotional bond there. And so there's been a lot of studies, frankly, that are starting to indicate that, yeah, that human animal bond does exist. And human human beings and, and dogs do have emotions that they share with each other, things like love. And now there's another scientific study that we can add to that list of studies out there that say that that exists to throw back in those naysayers' faces and say, see, my dog really does love me because science says so. So here's the study. Earlier this year, uh, Dr. Gregory Burns released this study. Uh, He's been researching the canine brain for about six years now. And he started this research after his favorite dog, Newton, had passed away. Now, he started thinking after Newton was gone, you know, I wonder if Newton really loved me. I I mean, what was he thinking about me all these years? What did he think about me? This was really weighing heavily on him because he clearly, he loved Newton, but was the feeling mutual? So he started looking like, how am I going to test this? How am I going to see if, if my, the love that I felt for my dog was mutual? And so he started looking at you know, brain science that's out there in humans. And there's a quite a few well-established studies that are done with MRI machines that show us how human brains respond to emotional stimuli. And he wants to say, you know, I'm going to take the, what they learned there and see if I can start to apply it to dog brain activity through MRI testing in the same manner. But he was really insistent that when he goes into this research, the animal needed to be treated like a human that was part of a study. He required that the dog's guardian would sign a consent form, that they were totally on board with what was, was going to happen in the study, that the dog was in no way com- uh, coerced to get into the MRI machine, and, and that the, the dog themselves would be treated with respect during the whole process. So he started, before they even started doing testing, he actually got a, a large group of dogs together and had them work with dog trainers uh, helping them learn to get into these M- uh, these simulated MRI machines so that they would be comfortable in the MRI machine. Because the goal had to be not only getting the dog into the machine, but also getting the dog to be completely still for a period of time while all of this noise was happening. Because if you've ever had an MRI, you know that these machines are crazy loud and I find them very claustrophobic and they require you to be confined in this little noisy space and hold absolutely still for a period of time. And Dr. Burns would not even consider sedating a dog because frankly, not only is that 
just not going to help uh, the dog at all. But also, it's not going to really show the valuable data that we need to show the insight on how the brain activity is going. Because when you're getting stimuli, when you're even a little bit um, sedated, it's going to be completely off. So it was imperative that these animals feel 100% comfortable in the machines. And when you look at the videos from the study, you, you can see that the dogs are they're really comfortable. They immediately jump in the MRI machine. They get into place. They know the drill. They're, they're happy to be doing this. Um, so they started the trials off. He had two phases of the test. The first phase uh, was using hand signals. So the trainers had taught the dogs two separate hand signals. The first signal was palm out. It's something that you and I probably associate as the stop signal. But for the, this experiment, it was used to show the dogs, you're getting a hot dog after this. And come on, you know that dogs love hot dogs. And so that was the, the, the positive stimuli, the stimuli that was supposed to be something the dogs really, really loved. The second hand symbol was both palms out with the fingertips pointing to each other. And this meant, sorry, dude, no hot dog is going to happen after this. And clearly that's, that's a non-love stimuli. So he conducted the test on these dogs and he learned that with the do- all the dogs, there was pronounced activity within a particular part of the brain. That part of the brain that had activity was the caudate nucleus section of the brain. And it only happened when the symbol for hot dog was shown. Now, this section of the brain holds the most dopamine receptors. Now, these receptors release dop- dopamine and dopamine is the chemical that is released in moments of pleasure. And they lit up big time when the hot dog symbol was shown to the dogs. So the next phase of the study was to say, okay, we know that the food gave that definite pleasure response. What about humans? Do, is, is the human um, interaction going to give a similar response? So what they did was they took the scent from a f- the familiar primary caregiver of the dog, that human scent, and they introduced that into the MRI to see what those scans showed. And those scans also showed the caudate nucleus lighting up big time. So basically, I guess you could say that, you know, your dog is as happy seeing you as they are as happy seeing a hot dog. And frankly, you know, that's pretty darn happy. Um, But now this, I got to just say that these findings don't prove conclusively that dogs really love us. But again, it's another indication that it is something like that. It is something like love. And here's the cool thing. Like I mentioned before, there's been a lot of MRI studies done with human brains, and the human brain responds very similarly to things that they love in a similar part of the human brain. So Dr. Burns' research does give us a lot more insight into that human-animal bond, which both you and I know is based on love. We're going to put a link uh, to uh, that study and articles about that study on our Facebook page, and uh, we'll do that with the other studies as well that we're going to talk about, so you can dig into them a little bit more. So what about cats? Well, you know, many cat owners, I mean, I think it's actually kind of a big joke, will tell you that, hey, I am merely the servant of my cat. Uh, my cat, I'm not my cat's companion. And frankly, uh, you know, it sometimes fe- feels like that, uh, that you don't get any attention from your cats. And in, in the whole, the dog has a family, the cat has a staff notion type of thing. But there's a lot of cat parents, just like dog folks, that will swear up and down that their cats dearly love them and that that bond is there as well. And frankly, 
We have two cats in our household, and Houdini, one of our cats, is totally smitten with me. She follows me around all the time. She always wants to be cuddled. She wants to be near me all the time. She's definitely jealous of the dogs when they get attention. But our other cat, Taz, you know, I think Taz would just assume that I take the Boston Terror, the crazy big dog, and the annoying clingy cat, Houdini, out and move. Um, But which is it? Do they love us, or do they simply tolerate us because we feed them and some of us you know, some of them tolerate a little bit more because they like food a little bit more. I'm not sure. But these researchers at Oregon State decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to ask that question. We're going to figure out a study to uh, try to answer that question. And it actually seems to prove that a lot of them do love us. You see, this is how the story went. 38 cats in, involving uh, different varying breeds and ages were offered a choice between food, a toy, and interesting smells on a piece of cloth, or the attention from a human. The results showed that 37% chose food. Now, this would definitely be Taz's group. 11% chose the toy, and only 1% was really interested in the smell of the fabric. But 50% of them chose the human first. And over the course of the trial time, an average of 65% of the time was spent by going to the human for attention by all the cats. So the study shows that there's not only, uh, you know, some definite significance to wanting human attention, but it also showed, and this I thought was really great, that there was no behavioral difference between shelter cats and non-shelter cats that were part of the study. So the researchers concluded that it's likely that factors from biological predisposition and probably most likely life experiences that have the greatest influence on whether or not they prefer social interaction to more solitary experiences like eating food. But clearly, It was the larger segment that did prefer human attention. And that's not commonly uh, thought of for cats. And, you know, the more and more research that is done on cats, on their cognitive systems, their social interactions, the more we learn how misunderstood and, frankly, vilified cats have become in our culture. Because clearly, cats interact with us much clearly differently than dogs do. But it's really unfair that we've said, oh, you know, they don't love us. They don't enjoy being around us. And if I'm being totally honest, Taz loves and dotes on my husband. She just simply has no use for me and the other fur kids in the house. Okay, um, another fun story, this is quick, was about cats, was about physical flow. And are they more liquid than solid? You see, there's this um, uh, board that came out called the Ignoble Physics Award or Ig Nobel Prize Awards. And this guy named Dr. Uh, Marc Antoine Fardin from Paris's Diderot University actually won the 2017 Physics Award from the Ig Nobel Awards because he wanted to see is our cats more solid or more liquid? Because if you look at, you know, all the memes that are out there that crack me up, that if it fits, I sit. Uh, so many times it looks like they're just pouring themselves into all sorts of objects and they seemingly fit perfectly despite the shape. shape. And he actually concluded that, yes, depending on the surface circumstance, cats actually act as a liquid filling the space. So, uh, for example, a cat in a small box, he concluded, per- behaves like a fluid filling up the entire space. But a cat in a bathtub of water will try to minimize the contact with it and will behave very much like a solid. So cracked me up a little bit. That was really funny. I'm actually going to post the video for the Ig Nobel Awards on the Facebook page. It's really funny, but a fair warning, there are some of those awards that are not suitable for showing at work. Okay, one last study that was, uh, was cool. It's back, back to dogs. 
Now, uh, this one uh, about dogs is all about how they are attempting to communicate with us using facial expressions. Now, as, as anybody that's ever had a dog can tell you, you know that those little stinkers are working you all the time for treats, and they use those puppy dog eyes to get them. Well, this scientific study led by Dr. Julianne Kaminsky found that dogs actually do use significantly more facial expressions around humans than they do around other dogs or when humans aren't paying any attention. So the abstract from the study says this, most mammalian species produce facial expressions. Historically, animal facial expressions have been considered inflexible and involuntary displays of emotional states rather than active attempts to communicate with others. In the current study, we aim to test whether domestic dog facial expressions are subject to audience effects and or changes in response to arousing stimuli, for example, food, alone. We presented dogs with an experimental situation where the human demonstrator was either attending them to tending to them, turned facing them, or not attending them, turned away, and varied whether or not she presented food. Dogs produced significantly more facial movements when the human was attentive than when she was not. The food, however, as a non-social but arousing stimulus, did not affect the dog's facial expression behavior at all. The current study, therefore, is evidence that dogs are more sensitive than to a human's attentional state when producing facial expressions, and it suggests that facial expressions are not just inflexible and involuntary displays of emotional states, but rather potentially active attempts to communicate with others. Okay, let me break this down a bit. The study was 24 dogs of various breeds and ages. Food was given, uh, that was given was a treat that the dogs really enjoyed. The same human was used in each individual dog trial, and the human would either face the dog holding the food in front of them, and then the dog would get to eat it, or they would hold food behind their backs, uh, and the dog would not get to eat it, and that was called the human gives attention phase. In the non-human attention phase, the human's in the room, but her back is turned to the dog, and she would either hold the food in front of the dog, which is behind her back, so that the dog could eat it, or she would hold it in front of her so the dog could not see it and could not eat it. Now, during each of the phases, the dog's facial expressions were measured using dog FACS. It's an anatomical-based coding system, which gave really reliable and standardized uh, measurements of the facial changes that linked to underlying muscle movements. All 24 dogs had similar readings. When the dogs were presented with food, but no human attention, there, were, there wasn't much facial expression. Even though they got the food, they didn't show any expression in their faces. They just ate it. But when the human was paying attention to them with the food, the dogs had a ton of facial expression, great excitement, huge emotional displays. Now, when there was no human attention and no food offered, again, no facial expression. But when there was no food offered but human attention was given, again, the same level of facial expression and emotional displays. So the dog's facial expression wasn't really about the emotion about being excited about getting food, it was about communicating with you, the humans, and your emotions that you were feeling, or what emotions they were hoping to elicit from you, O oh giver of treats. And get this, the most common facial expression was those killer puppy dog eyes. You know, when they raise their eyebrows to make their eyes look as big as possible? Clearly, dogs have figured out that humans are suckers for the big puppy dog eyes. They know it is the best way to get treats. <laughs> 
Don't you just love science? Thanks so much for geeking out with me today. And big thanks, too, to my wonderful guests, Dr. Kelly Deal from the Morris Animal Foundation and Steve Dale, who told us all about the wonderful research work that's being funded right now by Wind Feline Foundation. Really great stuff. Two wonderful organizations I highly encourage you to support. That's all we have time for today, folks. And if you love this show, make sure you check out our past shows and podcasts. We've got tons of great science that we've shared with you, and we'd love for you to check it out. And we hope to see you next time on Pet Lover Geek on Voice America. Thank you for tuning in this week for Pet Lover Geek. Please join your host, Lori and Clemens, for another edition on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, go grab your best friend and take them out and enjoy the rest of your weekend.